0: Hello oh, and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by senior editors Sue Sutter and Brenda Sandberg and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is March 24th, 2023. Here in D.C., we're enjoying the peak of cherry blossom season, as well as a number of FDA-related stories. First up is Moderna CEO Stefan Bensell's appearance on Capitol Hill for a Senate hearing on pricing of the company's COVID-19 vaccine. Benzel was forced to defend the company's decision to price the vaccine at $130 per dose, more than four times the government's per dose price when the market goes entirely commercial. But he framed the government price as one of a large, one that a large bulk purchaser would receive, which uh, I may have thrown some people for a loop. I, I don't know. As many expected, senators seemed more interested, though, in scoring political points and getting sound bites than understanding Moderna's pricing strategy. Republicans defended the company while Democrats complained about corporate greed, but both sides also agreed or did agree that it was um, Moderna's proposed patient assistant, assistance program, which would help the uninsured and underinsured access the product, deserved more scrutiny. Uh, several questions were asked about administration challenges and fees and policies requiring upfront payment and reimbursement later. Of course, no CEO wants to be hauled in front of a congressional committee. That's obvious and bensell was lucky in that his hearing was largely drowned out by an even bigger grilling by a house committee of the ceo of tiktok that happened the next day so i'm curious how you all think of bensell's framing of this of the price of 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 the vaccine as just a really really big bulk purchasing discount do you think that the and and do you think that the government contract should have included something about the commercial you know, the commercial market price after all the government purchasing
1: uh, you know ended? Well, I think uh, you know uh, his analysis is certainly correct. The reason that that uh, industrial price was so cheap is because uh, the fed's promised to buy a whole lot of it. So uh, that's sort of kind of classic uh, business uh, operations in uh, in practice there. It's a little uh, um uh, unfortunate that's sort of kind of that uh, his uh, defense is also a reminder of uh, the value of something that the government or that um pharma companies don't particularly like which is um you know um uh medicare you know quote unquote negotiation or price setting or what have you that's where kind of because they um you know uh dominate the um the the market in um in medicare they um they should um you know be able to use their their purchasing power to um to get better prices so um that is um you know a uh, um a way out of the hot seat but we're sort kind of i guess suppose into a uh, into another one if you will so uh, um something just we to sort of keep in mind uh, as that uh, that that pricing debate uh, goes on obviously i think he uh, um acquitted himself uh, pretty well and it's just it's just hard to sort of uh, um you know justify uh, um these uh, um these prices uh, um in a way that satisfies everybody obviously he's got uh, Shareholders to respond to. He has uh, um, uh, free market ideologues on the uh, um, on the committee that kind of want to uh, um, hear uh, one message, and he's got uh, you know a social democrat uh, chair who wants to hear a third. And so whatever he says is going to be uh, um, upsetting to somebody. But uh, you know his uh, responses made as, uh, as much sense as uh, anything could, given the uh, the theatrics of the, uh, the of the moment.
2: Was there a discussion about the comparison of the COVID nineteen vaccine price to other um vaccine prices like flu shots there
1: didn't uh, seem to be at least in our uh, um coverage unfortunately uh our uh, um our person in the room uh um sir carlin couldn't be uh um sir carlin smith couldn't be here for this uh this podcast but uh there did not seem to be a uh, a primary line of attack uh, you know for the most part they defended it as a uh, um you know new and novel technology uh you know flu shots have obviously been around for uh, um for decades and decades, and there's been uh, some advances in terms of how some of them were made, but uh, you know m MNR, is a new thing, and uh, you know that they uh, they think has a considerable value, and that's sort of, kind of what they uh, um, what they came up with in uh, um, in pricing it. Uh, you know, I think uh, um, the uh, the question is, we sort of kind of should uh, uh, the government sort of have had a rider in the initial contract saying, uh, you know, because we gave you all this extra. Um, money up front, we should, uh, you know, dictate prices sort of once our uh, bulk purchasing uh, ends is a uh, an interesting one. I think the uh, Republican uh, response that, uh, um, you know, if you wanted to sort of kind of uh, um, shame them about that, you should have uh, thought of that beforehand and uh, written it into the contract as a, uh, um, is a valid one. Um, you know, I think that's sort of the reason that they, uh, um, they didn't, obviously, it was the Trump administration doing those contracts, not uh, burning standards but uh you know no uh um no firm would want to uh you know sign a deal in which they basically were going to can't uh, can't price their own product so it's a, uh, um, a tricky situation there if the government were going to want to move forward with a uh, with a firm but uh you know sort of the uh, the firm uh, wants some autonomy so it's a uh, um it's unlikely that the the next time around you'll see a uh, a contract written like that even if it's a different uh, um administration writing the um writing the initial deal i would suspect
0: well, and another issue that, that kind of feeds into the the price what what is Moderna's expectation that there's going to be a ninety percent yeah he, yes nine zero he even said that reduction in demand for the COVID vaccine and they have to price in manufacturing costs and wasted shots and all these other all this other thing they, all these other things I mean I, I mean. I don't know. I I read that about three times. I thought ninety percent was a mistake, but you know, I mean, I I don't know. I mean, are you are you all surprised that ninety percent ninety percent reduction in demand for a COVID vaccine? I mean that 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 just seems like I, I don't know if you know. I don't know. I guess I'm 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 still kind of processing that.
2: Well, he's if he, in, if uh, he thinks that if he thinks that um they need to have a higher cost to deal with people not not um using it, I would think that that would go the other way. I mean, I was thinking, well, if the price is too high for people, they would just won't take the they would just won't get the shot. And that it would even lead to more rejection of the vaccine.
1: Yeah, that is the classic uh business trade-off that's where kind of that uh do you uh lower your prices to sort of expand your market or do you uh raise your prices to get the most out of the uh the people that are using your product to to uh to begin with so uh, you know I think what they are uh, banking on is uh, uh, obviously sort of, kind of that uh, um, you know uh, list price is just sort of the beginning of negotiations with uh, um, private payers they'll probably end up paying uh, less and that's also that uh, um, you know uh, anyone who uh, wants to get the COVID vaccine is uh, um, going to get it and they're uh, they're arguing that if you uh, um, want to get it and can't afford it you can use our uh, um, patient assistance programs and you know people started various problems with those uh, um, and uh, um and so forth. But, uh, um, I did like how he even, uh, himself in the testimony, uh, Derek sort of said, uh, that's nine zero. He sort of kind of thought that everyone sort of might, uh, might misinterpret that drop. But, uh, I, you know, I think one of these, uh, uh, hidden problems in the, uh, from the pandemic is that, uh, it appears that, uh, vaccination rates overall have, uh, have dropped and there's a lot of, uh, Arguing back and forth about no, that's not really the case, and it was a blip, and you know what have you? But uh, you know, I think we'll have to sort of uh, keep a careful eye on this over the next couple of years to see if uh, um, you know uh, you know COVID vaccinations ra- match uh, flu vaccination rates, and if flu vaccination rates match the uh, somewhat uh, um, uh, discouraging level that they were at uh, even uh, pre-pandemic. It's not like you're kind of everyone was getting their flu shot, uh, you know, before 2020. It was a uh, you know minority of the uh, um of the population then. and I uh, you know, I suspect his estimate is discouragingly uh, um is uh, discouragingly, uh, correct there
0: well, and the FDA has, you know I mean, they're they're in the process of determining how to make a strain change in the covid vaccine and and how to roll this, you know, in preparation theoretically for rolling it out in September, or September, October, or something like that. i I'm just curious if they're if they're, you know, designing, you know, whatever kind of rollout plans they have using the numbers that Moderna has now, or if they'll incorporate that, I mean, because it, you know, it, even if you're expecting, you know, I mean know, the flu shots, 40, 50%, that's a lot different than what Moderna is predicting here with the COVID vaccine, potentially. Next, we're going to take a look at, a longtime issue that saw a major development this week. Brenda, the NIH finally made a ruling on a march-in rights petition for the prostate cancer drug Xtandi.
2: Yes, they did. Um, the petitioners asked HHS, they, they petitioned HHS to to use the march-in rights proceeding um, to get rights to Xtandi patents. And NIH said because the drug was widely available on the market, and the patent life was running out. Um, the remaining patent life, the patent expires in 2027. That um, that this that they that was their rationale for for not granting um, the petition. Now the petitioners, um, can, the whole heart of their petition is that uh, the price of the drug is is, is Three to six times higher in the U.S. than than it is in other wealthy countries, and they said that under the Bayh-Dole Act, the Martin, uh, the the law that established the Martin proceedings, it said that one of the terms of that is that the drug, a, a drug that's um, developed with federally funded federal funds, should be available to the public on reasonable terms, and the 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 issue is that pricing is at the very heart of what constitutes reasonable terms. But NIH did not address that at all. They didn't talk about reasonable terms and and pricing. um and and they haven't. Uh, they've rejected every every petition for margin that's come before them over the years. there There's been at least twelve. And um and the the petitioners, um, Robert Saxon, Claire Love, they petitioned. They um, they appealed to HHS um, the day after the, the decision and they said asked the HHS to handle the appeal themselves and not give it to NIH and um, that 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 it, they really focus on that that uh, being available to the public on reasonable terms. Now at the same time, it seemed like hopeless, like oh the government's never ever going to consider price. But uh, I don't know if it was a political maneuver or what to try and. Um, cushion, the blow, but at the same time NIH has announced its decision, HHS put out a press release with the Department of Commerce saying that they were going to form an interagency task force to develop a framework for implementing Marchant provisions, and they particularly mentioned price. They said this new framework would articulate where different factors, including price, might be considered when evaluating a petition. And also the Department of Commerce's National Institute of Standards and Technology issued a final rule that day on the rights to federally funded inventions and licensing of government-owned inventions. And what was key there was they took out a provision that would have Prevented that was in the notice of of, um, notice of uh, proposed rulemaking that prohibited the government from using margin solely on the basis of a product's price, and they did that. They got over eighty thousand comments in in with um, in response to the NPRM, and most of them, you, they said a large percentage of the comments dealt with that whole issue of of margin and and pricing. So um, they took that out which means that you know they won't a petition wouldn't be denied just on the basis of price and they said and they referred to the fact that they were going to come up with a framework so that gave that gave people an opening um people advocates of of march an opening that maybe the government might at some point consider pricing as a as a as a reason for um using their Martin authority. Uh, oh. One other thing I wanted to mention is that um, Jamie Love, who who had petitioned, his brother was one of the petitioners here. He had petitioned uh, HHS or NIH uh, in 2016, and NIH denied it for the same reason then that it, it denied uh, denied now. They, they the NIH said, well, it's publicly available, so that's not an issue. But they the NIH in the past has specifically said pricing can't be a factor. Petitions can't be used as a price control measure, um, but Jimmy Love told me that he that petitions, even if they aren't granted, they have had a very positive. They've been leveraged and and companies have responded to that pressure. For instance, there was um, a petition against um, for Norvir patents, Abbott Labs Norvier patents back in um, I think it was two thousand four, and they the, the company lowered the price. Of um, Norvir, seventy percent for for seventy percent of patients on federal programs. So um, even if petitions aren't being successful, sometimes companies do respond to them.
0: So do you get the sense, Brenda, that the government's position on this is changing, or are they just you know doing some more fact finding?
2: I, I I NIH absolutely his position hasn't changed. They are against you know. Considering price as a as a factor, um, I don't know if if HHS, I mean HHS, kicked the petition over to NIH to handle. So now they're being HHS is being asked to deal with it directly itself. Whether or not it really will focus on this, um, or they just said they just knocked it down the road to say oh, we're going to we're going to develop a framework, a new framework. Whether that really will lead to any change in their policy, I, I don't know. I guess I'm also curious if we're going to see more petitions like this,
0: you know, you know, g- given what you just said that, you know, there and what you wrote there, there seems to be somewhat of an opening here to kind of to make price an issue for on a margin rights petition. I don't know if, you know, I guess as more and more of these get filed? Do, do they feel like they're kind of chipping away at whoever it is at, at HHS or NIH that, uh, you know, that that's, that's uh, you
2: know, in charge of, you know, uh, denying these? Well, the NIST, they came out with a report in uh, 2019, and they mentioned that there'd been 12 marching petitions since Bidol was enacted in, in 1980, which it seems like a it It doesn't seem like a very large number. i would i would I would have thought there would be more than that. so i'm I'm not sure what what the factors are that actually prompt a petition. you know, the early ones, um it was during the AIDS epidemic, and um they uh, were, you know, focusing on the availability of AIDS drugs. So uh, and and here, this was a prostate cancer drug. And so the uh, you know, the the need for that to be widely available, um, or not widely available, but the pricing to be an issue on a, a drug that was so crucial to pe- cancer patients, that might have been a factor for why that particular drug was chosen.
1: I would be surprised if there were uh, more petitions. There seems to be, as uh, Brenda noted, sort of, kind of a uh, small sublet- subset of the, uh, um, the the health advocacy community that sort of thinks this is a uh, a good avenue to go down. They... You know, obviously sort of kind of uh, timed. Their most recent one, sort of to uh, to uh, match the sort of incoming Biden administration. We're sort of hoping this sort were of kind of the uh, um, the changed administration, which were sort of kind of produce a different outcome than the previous ones have. Um, it didn't. I was uh, again surprised that they appealed. They seemed to be ready for that, uh, doing it the same day that the um, the rejection came out. So it's a. Uh, um, uh, obviously, an interesting bit of maneuvering. You know, we had a uh, story this this morning from our uh, colleague Mike McCann, who said that uh, the real strategy uh, um, on these drugs may not be uh, margin rights, but uh, you know, uh, Medicare uh, price setting. That uh, um, um, extendy isn't sort of uh, you know out of the woods. Uh, you know, he used the uh, into the frying uh, um, pan from uh, or into the fire out of the frying pan. Uh, uh, butchered that uh, um, uh, that analogy there. So. Uh, um, you know, that uh, in the, um, the the administration seems to feel that sort of kind of that there, uh, there are some mechanisms in place to uh, address pricing and sort of kind of uh, um, browbeating NIH about it isn't one of them. Uh, you know, it sort of relates to what we were uh, talking about a little bit earlier with the Moderna um, uh, hearing, that it's sort of the uh, – um, it becomes uh, uh, obvious that the government is going to sort of, kind of want uh, too much uh, – control of pricing from a uh, potential partner um, that it works with, uh, you're not going to get as many potential partners. And uh, the uh, um, Biden administration seems to feel that that is uh, um, not worth the the trade off there. So uh, um, I will be curious what these other frameworks uh, come up with. And uh, I think uh, um, a lot is actually riding on how effective the uh, the Medicare price negotiation is uh, versus what these other, uh, um, you know, pricing levers that they could pull uh, will be.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a, an issue to watch going forward. Um, you know, even if they, like you said, Matt, there aren't a whole lot of more petitions, but uh, you know, they, the kind of the tentacles, kind of, are all interconnected here, I guess. You know, with with Medicare price negotiation and 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 uh, you know, the, every, everything else, you know, innovation and so forth. So, yeah, definitely an issue to to keep you know to be aware of going down the road. Finally, we're going to look at a candidate for ALS treatment. Uh, Biogen and I, Ionis' as t- Tofersen. Soon, an advisory committee gave a recommendation on whether accelerated approval or conventional approval is appropriate.
3: Yeah, so just to back up a little bit, Biogen um, sought accelerated approval for Tofersen in ALS patients with the SOD1 genetic mutation, so a very small subset of patients. And um, the pivotal trial failed the primary clinical endpoint as well as the secondary endpoints. I mean, it's statistically failed, and there's no question about that. There's no debate about that. But Biogen sought accelerated approval on the basis of um, reductions in plasma neurofilament light chain concentration were um, are reasonably likely to predict clinical benefit. And they did a whole bunch of um, sort of exploratory and post hoc analyses um, attempting to show that these reductions in NFL, as they call them, um, were linked to better clinical outcomes in this phase three trial. So um, the advisory committee meeting was on a Wednesday. The FDA's briefing documents came out on the Monday before. And it was a little surprising because FDA was not only asking the advisory committee what it thought about accelerate approval, but also whether the evidence was sufficient to support regular approval, which Biogen was not seeking. So that was kind of interesting that to see that FDA was open to this idea, given the state of the evidence. So at the advisory committee, um, the panel unanimously, 90, um said that the evidence is such that um, uh, it's sufficient to conclude that a reduction in plasma NFL concentration in tofersen-treated uh, patients is reasonably likely to predict clinical benefit. So that was essentially a yes on the issue of whether or not accelerated approval was appropriate. However, on the question of whether or not um, <clears throat> the data available supported uh, or provided convincing evidence of effectiveness, such that regular approval would be warranted. Um, only three of nine panelists said that, yes, the data was sufficient to support regular approval. So it was a pretty clear um, it's a pretty clear no, I think, well, five to three with one abstention um, against regular approval. Um, there were definitely a lot of sort of just discomfort with regular approval. They definitely wanted to see more data. Not only from the open label extension of the ongoing, um, the ongoing open label extension of the phase three trial that failed its clinical endpoint, but um, there's also another study underway called Atlas and that study is underway in SOD1 ALS individuals who carry the SOD1 mutation and have NFL plasma concentrations above a certain level and are asymptomatic. So they're looking to see whether Topherson can prevent those individuals from just developing um, ALS symptoms. So that trial is expected to complete in 2027. And um, I think the the panel really wanted to see the data from that, too. I,
0: I was... Actually, I was really interested to see that there were a couple advisory committee members who were openly worried that about giving accelerated approval because they didn't they weren't sure if the payers were going to cover it. I guess that's a function of the Agihome home experience now and and everything we've seen that's come from that. But, I mean, have you seen this sort of thing before? I mean, I remember, and this was several years ago. One of the first advisory committee meetings for biosimilar, someone asking if about whether it was going to be priced lower than the reference product. But I, I don't remember this kind of you know hearing it in this kind of context before.
3: So the concern about payment was made by one um, advisory committee member, and he and he didn't even specifically mention Aduhelm, but he said, you know, I'm concerned, you know, as a neurologist that. If, uh, approval under accelerated approval, that the insurers are not going to pay for it. And I think it was pretty obvious where he was coming from on that statement. So now on the previous um, ALS Drug Advisory Committee meeting, that was for Amelix's Relivrio. That drug was not being considered for accelerated approval. That was for regular approval. So it didn't really come up in that context there. Lakembi, which is the next Alzheimer's drug that was approved, we haven't had an advisory committee meeting on that yet. Certainly that's had the same coverage problems that Aduhelm has, but they're in a much better position because they've already got phase three confirmatory data and there's going to be a a forthcoming advisory committee on converting their accelerated approval to regular approval. You know, I think it's come up also in the context of just gen not not advisory committees but general discussion about concerns about well if the data is not strong enough under accelerated approval then then payers are not going to pay for it it's come up in the context of of gene therapies i remember peter mark saying that you know if if people are worried enough about the data that under accelerated approval that they're not going to pay for it then that doesn't really do much good for the patients yeah it's
0: it's just a it's an interesting conversation you know, even a, a comment, whatever you want to say, you know, in the in during an advisory committee to have, which, you know, they the FDA is, you know, listeners are well aware, doesn't doesn't do anything related to coverage, reimbursement, Medicare, et cetera. They hand it off. And, you know, as as much as we'd like to talk about how well that handoff is made, you know, which, you know, uh, you know, it it is a it is a true handoff at this point
3: right but the patients don't see it that way and the the clinicians don't see it that way they mm-hmm. see it all all one all tied together mm-hmm.
1: Sue, so the uh, you know committee obviously was supposed to just sort of of kind of committee uh, consider uh one product and the uh, the data in front of it but uh as derek was mentioning uh you know it's 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 hard not to sort of look at the whole issues we're kind of uh, with uh um uh helm uh, sort of uh, um you know uh, clouding it, uh, coloring it, or kind of hanging over it. Uh, um, I'll, I'll stop trying to, uh, um, it, it, it just reviews a uh, different analogies there. <laughs> but uh, um, what, what, is, what was your sense of listening to the committees for kind of how much, you know, this sort of the whole broader debate and brouhaha is influencing, uh, you know, if at all, their uh, their consideration of this?
3: Well, as I say, I mean, I don't think the word aduhelm or was mentioned once um, during this entire meeting. Um, <clears throat> whereas it, it was mentioned previously at the Larivrio Relivrio meetings, I remember that specifically. Um, and in that context, it was, well, you gave all this regulatory flexibility to Adjuhelm, we want the same regulatory flexibility. So that's sort of the context in which it has come up. Um, what struck me with, um, Tofersen was you've got a clinical... A phase three trial in a very rare disease um, that just flat out failed everybody's saying it failed you know there's no question about that but there were very favorable trends on the on the primary clinical and the secondary clinical endpoints but statistically it failed so um you know you've now got fda Sort I I just wonder if FDA has opened the door here in terms of if they were to do go ahead and do an accelerated approval or a regular approval. I think an accelerated approval gives them more cover, but still, you know, you don't have any positive trial here. So <laughs> I I think that's the the big case with Aduhelm, it You know, it could be argued that there was one of two positive, one out of two trials was positive, even though that had some issues around data robustness of course that was not a rare disease either so i just i just wonder if sort of this is really opening the door to them increasingly not being as concerned about the statistical analyses as they as some would like them to be
0: yeah i've i've heard that over and over and matt i'm sure you've heard it over and over too from people who are saying that, like, the the classic p e value of 0.05 is, you know, it's just a number, and if a, if a drug hit 0.49, 0.049, are you really going to say no? And if it's only, if it's 0.051, are you really going to say, well, that's obviously an effective drug or, or whatever, you know, you know what I mean? So it, it, you've, we've heard that argument before. Actually, I heard it yesterday in the, in the context of um, developing neonatal um, drugs, which is another, which is one of those areas where they can't develop anything for a whole bunch of reasons, but one of them is the, the, you know, they have a hard time getting to the approval, um, the, you know, the classic uh, statistical uh, approval standards. So, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, it, it's, you know, regulatory flexibility is a beautiful thing, in part because it's vague. So, you know. Yeah,
3: exactly. <laughs> we know it when we see it.
0: Exactly. <laughs> yes.
3: I mean, I do think it's interesting that in, for this ALS drug, for the amylix ALS drug, for Adjihelm, and also for Lecanemab. In all four of those cases, the statistical reviewer and the statistical review team have dissented, and it was it was the same statistical reviewer, actually, in every case. So uh, I just kind of find that interesting. Um, All four of these drugs were handled by the Office of Neuroscience. So I'm just sort of wondering what the relations are these days between the Office of Neuroscience and the, um, you know, the biostatistical the biostatistician office.
0: Did they have statisticians on the committee?
3: There was uh, there was at least one. There may have been more than one, but I remember specifically at least one, and he and voted the- against regular approval.
1: Do what is your sense that uh, perhaps the way that FDA framed things, for kind of offering regular pr- regular approval and accelerated approval, allowed the committee to. Air their concerns about the drug in voting against regular approval, but then through kind of you know, they could also be positive uh, and vote for accelerated approval. Whereas it was just accelerated approval on the table, it, you know, they sort of may uh, may have been less comfortable, uh, you know, giving a, uh, a thumbs up to uh, um, to it.
3: I don't know. I mean, they the accelerated approval was question was asked before the regular approval question. Um, I think asking the regular approval question allowed for more exploration of the clinical efficacy data and whether or not all these post hoc exploratory analysis that Biogen came in with, you know, how much credibility those carried. Um, So maybe that's where FDA was going with that question. I also wonder, you know, after the whole Ajijahm brouhaha, where they asked the committee about regular approval, committee said no, and then FDA kind of very quietly decided to do accelerated approval, and they got they got reamed for for not going back to the advisory committee about that question. Um, I wonder if sort of any time FDA has this possibility on hand that they're going to ask the committee about both potential pathways.
1: So, it certainly seemed a much more politic approach to uh, to make sure that they had gotten uh, external input on uh, whatever, it is, whatever it is they might uh, might consider doing. Here, that's that's good point. So, exactly, yes.
0: Especially in the case in the neurology office, where this is where it, that was where it happened before. Right. So, they're not going to make the same mistake twice. Well,
2: I, I was okay. also
0: <laughs> I was also curious about the the comments from the FDA that that going forward the, you know, other ALS candidates that come in, um, even on NFL, uh, reduction, I keep thinking football when I say yes. that, by the way, <laughs> um, that, that they would be considered case by case. I guess I'm, I, I guess I'm, 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 I'm getting a little confused or maybe I'm unclear about how, you know, is it, is the surrogate good or is the surrogate only good when we think it, when we say it is, I, I guess, <laughs> you know what I mean?
3: Well, FDA the the question FDA posed was very specific. It was about Tofersen driven reductions in NFL in these SOD1 ALS patients. Teresa Baraccio, who is the acting director of the Office of Neuroscience, was sort of asked about you know what happens about with other drugs that come in with this biomarker, and she said any drug that comes in, you know, with this NFL reduction is going to be analyzed on its own merit, both with regard to the biomarker and also with regard to the patient population that they are going after. So, I thought that was very interesting that FDA was was really limiting the circumstances in which this biomarker could be considered reasonably likely to predict clinical benefit. You know, they certainly were not opening the door for everyone to come in with reductions in NFL, Um, you know, just sort of a wholesale opening of the door and saying, come on in and and you'll get your accelerated approval if you show reductions in NFL. You know, she made it very clear that every drug and every indication is going to be analyzed on its own merit.
0: It's an an interesting way to put it. You know, especially if, you know, know, in the context of other, you know, approvals that we've seen where there was concern that, you know, some of these doors would be opened and then they'd be kind of cornered into approving a lot of things that maybe they didn't want to approve based on, you know, a biomarker. Um, But I I guess, you know, it makes you wonder if at some point if they have to consider someone has to try and validate. The surrogate, or you know, it's some. Right. Yeah, they have to decide whether the surrogate is valid or or not. You can't just keep saying we're going to do it a case by case. I mean, you know, so it, it. Another interesting question that comes out of all this, I think.
3: It's also interesting because going back to Adjuhelm, because everything goes back to Adjuhelm. <laughs> it seems you know in the past <laughs> three years, a lot. Uh, some very senior level people in Cedar have defended the Adjuhelm approval. As in the sense that, well, look at the lacanumab data. That really bears out the fact that, that amyloid reduction was a surrogate endpoint, reasonably likely to predict clinical benefit. So they're kind of, you know, using that as an explanation for, yes, we got the aducanum, aducanumab approval right. But if you listen to Teresa Baracchio, everything's going to be analyzed, at least in the ALS context, Individually and on a case-specific basis. So I I feel like there's some cross messages there.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a it's a tough one, and yeah, I don't you know I mean I said this about Billy Dunn when he was in charge of the neurology office. I'll say it with about Teresa Baracco. I mean Solomon himself would have trouble making these decisions. I think in a lot of the, in a lot of these cases because it's so it's it's so. It's just so complicated. The science is so difficult. The disease is so bad that, you know, you, right. I, yeah, I, I don't know how they make up their minds, to be honest with you. <laughs>
2: right.
0: Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sue Sutter, Brenda Sandberg, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.